Welcome to Bill's Big Bag of Onions, the incandescent blend of micro-fictions contributed by local writers and resplendent music you probably haven't heard. Fire by Pat Bloss. Lieutenant Commander Steele cradled his cocoa, small comfort against the bitter sea. It was less than a week into World War II, and his sub, the Triton, the Oxley, and three others patrolled off Norway. Another sub had surfaced. Could be Oxley, but she's out of position. Send a box lamp challenge. No response. To that, or two more challenges. Good God, yelled Oxley's Lieutenant Commander Bowerman. Now she's sending up flares. Didn't you respond to her signals? I thought so, sir. Well, respond now. The equipment's jammed, sir. I can't get... Two snake-like deadly waves sped towards them. Fifty-three lives lost. Free Enterprise by Bill Lawrence. With me on that dark, cold March evening were 459 passengers, 128 vehicles, and 80 crew. The weather was good. 
Less than a mile out to sea, the ferry quickly capsized as tons of seawater poured in through open bow doors. The boatswain was asleep. The second officer was at the stern. The chief officer didn't make his checks. The captain was distracted. In just a few moments, my entire world was dark and spinning. Incoherent screams became distant. I was swept up into a seething mass of humanity in freezing cold water. And we were fighting for our lives. Pilgrim's Progress by Ian Hornet. Captain Christopher Jones, like his ship the Mayflower, was of Harwich stock. Together they had delivered 102 passengers to America through howling gales and tumultuous seas with waves larger than the vessel itself. Yet here they were, having survived everything nature had thrown at them. On deck, Captain Jones stared out at Cape Cod, a land full of promise and hope. A boy, barely ten, innocently asked him, Is this really the land of opportunity? So they reckon, lad, Jones replied. Unfortunately, for the boy and 44 others, the brutal winter ahead would mean that nature had the final say. Fair Game by Caroline Amanda Galtieri rubbed his hands with an oily rag. Not bad for a 44-year-old engine, he thought. He wondered how it had sounded when it was the Phoenix in December 1941, steaming away from Pearl Harbor, having survived the Japanese surprise attack. These oily pistons had hammered away across the Pacific back then, just as they were now carrying its crew home safely to Buen Successo Naval Base. Just then, there was a white flash and a murderous onslaught of water, killing him instantly. His body and the General Belgrano were at the bottom of the South Atlantic 20 minutes later.
drink with me to love and life and what may be with the sun and the sky in our hearts carefree cause it's a long way it's a We'll hold the key So stand fast brothers We will not flee The first to turn Then down be he It's a long way It's a long way down It's a long way It's a long way down To the bottom escape this destiny where Davy Jones and the devil will be so lift a glass and drink with me it's a long way it's a long way it's a long way it's a long way down to the bottom Too long, and the sailors above will fear our song. It's a long way. It's a May 1588 Philbost and the smaller English boats were quicker, and the infidels sent fireships among our mighty fleet, so that we were forced to haul anchor, and then the accursed winds which drove us ever northward. These are such long and hopeless days, and many have become sick. Around the Scottish headlands, and then finally south, and now we meet our end on Irish rocks, and God has quite forsaken us. Vasa by Paul Hooper. The pennants flew, the horns blew. The sails billowed, and the newly completed Vassa drew away from the wharf, and made majestic progress across Stockholm Harbour. It was one of the most powerful warships of its time, destined to reinforce the King of Sweden's status as the most powerful monarch in Northern Europe. However, after a mere 1400 yards, a crosswind caused the Vassa to capsize and sink. Apparently, 
The second gun deck of massive bronze cannons was one deck too many. The ship's designer had died during construction, and so there was no need for his head to roll. farewell to the port and the land and i paddle away from brave england's white sands to search for my long ago forgotten friends to search for the place i hear all sailors end as the souls of the dead fill the space of my mind I'll search without sleeping till peace I can find I fear not the weather, I fear not the sea I remember the fallen, do they think of me When their bones in the ocean forever will be Plot a course to the night, to a place I once knew to a place where my hope died along with my crew So I swallow my grief and face life's final test To find promise of peace and the solace of rest As the souls of the dead fill the space of my ears Their laughter like children, their beckoning cheers My heart longs to join them, sing songs of the sea I remember the fallen, do they think of me When their bones in the ocean forever will be When at last before my ghostly shipmates I stand I shed a small tear for my home upon land Though their eyes speak of deaths filled with struggle and strife Their smiles below say I don't owe them my life as the souls of the dead live forever in my mind As I live all the years that they left me behind I'll stay on the shore but still gaze at the sea I remember the fallen and they think of me For our souls in the ocean together will be I remember the fallen and they think of me For our souls in the ocean together will be Brighton's West Pier 2002 by Claire Kemsley smacked against the rusting struts of the pier. Her fingers numb, the wire stiff, waves roared. Thirty-eight years ago, in the pavilion, high above the boat, she'd watched, abandoned on the dance floor, while he'd spun around with Cecilia Brunning. She'd pushed Cecilia over the railings, heard her splash, watched her disappear. Thirty-seven years she'd sat in greyness, waiting, listening to the sea through grill-covered windows. He came every year, wept on the shore. The stone in her hand, heavy, one hit, enough. She lit the fuse, the boat lurched. She fell. Fire danced in the pavilion. Another body floats. Thank you. 
Arctic Waters, 23rd of June, 1611, by John Dew. Temperatures plummeted, chasing the ship south. Hudson hoped for a southern outlet back to the Atlantic, but the crew wanted to return back north to open water. The captain refused. Slowly the discovery entered a labyrinth seemingly without end, a pristine, silent, shimmering land. Imperceptibly the crunching, groaning grip of ice tightened, finally trapping the wooden hull. The discovery stopped. Throughout the long, bitter winter, they would all be stuck with no hope of contact. The desperate crew mutinied, cutting Henry Hudson and his son adrift in a shallop. They were never seen again, until spotted by one hungry white bear. by Jenny Miller.
Children wail and adults put on a brave face as we hobble in chains onto the enormous boat, cringing away from the flailing whips. They herd us into a dingy basement, adults caged at one end, kids at the other. I wretch at the stench of vomit and feces. I hear my nine-year-old sobbing. A white man's voice. Don't cry, dear. We're going to paradise. You'll love it. Come with me. I'll show you a bit of it. He carries her off. Grunts and screams fill the air. Then he drags her limp body out and tosses it into the sea. Peep's Diary, June the 8th to the 13th, 1667, by Jim Crim. To the office, news this morning that the Dutch are come with 80 sail to Harwich, and guns heard even at Bednall Green. Home to dinner, a ham of French bacon boiled with pigeons, an excellent dish. Ordered fire ships to annoy the Dutch in the King's Channel, expected up higher. Dinner, a brace of stewed carps, six roasted chickens. The Dutch broke the chain, burned our ships, including the Royal Charles, most sad to be sure. A leg of mutton boiled, three carps in a dish. Our navy is defeated, one tainted pasty, my stools are deviled Dutchmen. The Titanic 1912, Choices, by Clay Morrison. Regardless of my fate, the choices of this day have already brought devastation. The choice of flimsy dinghies bobbing on terrifyingly cold waters rather than the floating city that once seemed unstoppable. Now unstoppable only in its destructiveness. The countless choices of who ventures into the uncertainty of attempted escape and who remains to face certain death. Now I've no choice but to wait, wondering which will come first, rescue or death from exposure? Which friends are among the figures out here in the dark and which are part of the spectacle of horror that sinks lower and lower?
RMS Lusitania 1915 by Jake Becker. Captain Turner was given a warning to avoid U-boat attacks by zigzagging. His ship carried 17 tons of munitions and 1,265 passengers. That's 215,000 pounds of civilian meat. His ship was more muscular than a U-boat and at 23 knots, three times faster than one moving underwater. He assumed the arrogance of his ship. Zigzagging was for fairies, he said. My dad said that faking out the defender in any sport is not about speed. It's about suddenness in changing direction. Turner had 18 minutes to think about it. A lot of meat was saved on the mainland. workers are feared dead in the world's worst ever oil field disaster. An explosion demolished the Piper Alpha oil platform 120 miles east of Wick. pictures were taken by a camera crew who flew out to the stricken oil platform with the first rescue helicopter from Ariel Flossiemouth. Flames were shooting over 700 feet into the air and rescuers said they could feel the intense heat while they were still some distance away. Port ship Tharos poured thousands of gallons of water onto the platform where survivors said the metal was quite hot. Many of those who did survive were lifted by helicopter from the Tharos, which acted as an emergency hospital ship. around the platform was also ablaze as spilled fuel caught fire. Rescuers plucked many men from the water after they jumped from a hundred feet above from the platform. Harry Smith, ITN Scotland.
Paid in Full Up Front by Adrian Cohen. He stared down from the bridge, transfixed by the stack of containers swaying, toppling. The dark green one had a mark on its roof for the crane operator, a mark on its side for customs, and a do-not-search code for the immigration people in Lisbon. Finally, it plunged into the water, bobbed on the furious waves for a moment, and then sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. He stared out at the murderous sea, imagining the thrashing and screaming as his pounding heart returned to normal. These reckless, greedy illegals, he thought, they only have themselves to blame. Unseen Unnoticed by Cara Black Violent mutiny sweeps through the bounty Screams suppressed by the ferocity of the South Pacific Ocean Nineteen men trust, thrown overboard, fall onto damp, salt-stained boards, limbs twisted, breadfruit splattered, water spilt, their refuge tossing in angry waters. Rogue waves capture the launch, hurling it forward, sea storms rage through the April night. Captain Bly stands straight-backed, steady, Eighteen men to stare black-eyed in darkness. Fierce loyalty to the crown quells their fear of perils, shame, disgrace. Bly trembles with temper. His volatile nature, provoked by crashing waves, torrential rain. He holds tight his compass and sextant. May God guide his navigation. Oh, my poor old mother, she wrote to me, Leave her, Johnny, leave her. She wrote to me to come home from sea, And it's time for us to leave her. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. Oh, leave her, Johnny, leave her. For the voyage is done and the winds don't blow, And it's time for us to leave her. Beware those packet ships, I say. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. For they'll steal your stores and your clothes away. And it's time for us to leave her. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. Oh, leave her, Johnny, leave her. For the voyage is done and the winds don't blow. And it's time for us to leave her. Oh, I hope that you will never be Leave her, Johnny, leave her In a gallows hell, the likes of she And it's time for us to leave her Leave her, Johnny, leave her Oh, leave her, Johnny, leave her 
For the voyage is done and the winds don't blow And it's time for us to leave her We were made to pump all night and day We've heard Johnny leave her And we have dead and beggar all to say And it's time for us to leave her Leave her, Johnny, leave her Leave her, Johnny, leave her For the voyage is done and the winds don't blow And it's time for us to leave her It said unsinkable in the brochure by Tom Wolsey. Ocean Queen, with 20 decks, 7 swimming pools, 150 restaurants, carrying 7,600 passengers around the infamous Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Chile, was foundering in a demented, vindictive storm and dark and ghastly seas. Alarming damage, listing precariously, generators broken down, passengers hopelessly seasick, 7 missing, presumed drowned. And Brad Baker, having recently inherited one billion US dollars, finally manages to get through to the owners in the Bahamas using a state-of-the-art satellite phone. Do you know how much I paid for this trip? I want someone down here to sort out this mess right now. Do you hear me? An Ode to Mary McCormack by Ruth Hamilton A bonny lass of lower class Condemned to Botany Bay For stealing bread to feed her bairns Now she had to pay Boarding ship, babe on hip Siblings left behind She could not comprehend The wrath and cruelty of mankind The horrors of that journey are difficult to tell. The roiling, reeking, wretched hull, an unrelenting hell. She fed her child on rations, but little could provide. And nine miles out from Sydney Cove, her darling baby died. The grieving mother, keening for she could take no more, let the ocean claim her as the ship approached the shore. One's for sorrow, two's for joy Three's for a girl and four's for a boy Five's for silver, six for gold Seven's for a secret never told Devil, devil, I defy thee. Devil, devil, I defy thee.
Bill's Big Bag of Onions is a Guppy production for Cone Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. Where in hell can you go? Far from the things that you know Far from the sprawl of concrete That keeps crawling its way Keep your heart off your sleeve Guppy Productions presents Series 2 of From Colchester to Sulawesi Written for Colm Radio by Phil Boast and Paula Larcher Episode 4 of 6 To Kill or Not to Kill The text message that we received from Oni is short and to the point. It says simply, Tomorrow I am leaving to work in Surabaya. We know nothing of Surabaya, other than that it is the second largest city in Indonesia after Jakarta, and that, like Jakarta, it is located on the island of Java. What we are fairly certain of is that Oni has no intention of moving to Surabaya or anywhere else. He has his house and life here. And on the whole, Indonesians don't travel well. This is Mind Games, a statement designed to provoke a reaction. And in this regard, it works because we have to react. So we'll phone him. But first, strong coffee and discussion about the implications of the message. In the first instance, we agree that in terms of everyday life, we would in fact be far better off without him. Our last few meetings having seen nothing positive happen between us. We've paid him off and have been glad to see the back of him. He seems now to be in a constant state of grim agitation and not pleasant company at all. No talk of the future, our business or how he will fit into the general running of the lodge from now on. Just silliness really, and not nice silliness either. So we wouldn't miss him. But he is still our business partner, and most importantly of all, he has been responsible for obtaining all of our documents, from our land ownership certificates and business registration document, to our immigration papers and work permits and so on. And some of these he still holds, and we need them back if we are to continue to live and work here. Oni knows this, of course, and that he holds this last and considerable power over us and is perhaps expecting or hoping that we will try to persuade him to stay and to not depart to his imagined new life. But we agree that we aren't going to play it that way. So Phil phones him and says, Fine, Oni, it's your life and you must do as you wish, but we need our documents, and tells him that we are coming to his house to collect them. This meets with the expected angry reaction, so Phil ends the call and we try to prepare ourselves for whatever may happen next. We explain the situation to Aris, who drives us to Oni's house, which is about an hour's drive from the lodge. The house is small but well appointed, and this is the first time that we have been there. We try to reason with Oni, once again reiterating that he must do what he feels is right for him, but we need our papers. He refuses to give them to us, and no amount of reason can break any ice here. He's beyond reason now, and at one point during the quite lengthy discussions, he raises a fist to Paula, and threatens to hit her, perhaps trying to provoke me into a physical confrontation, which is a mistake. I intervene between them, refusing to be drawn into a fight, and his next move is to take a jerry can of petrol and throw it over the jeep, with a view to setting a match to it. By now, Yanti, his wife, who we have only met on the odd, rare occasion, is screaming at him to stop. The jeep is parked only a matter of feet from the house, and she is rightly concerned that if the jeep catches fire and explodes, then so will the house. Oni backs off. Aris, who has been silent throughout, starts the vehicle, and Paula and I get in and we drive away, with no documents and as yet no idea what to do next. So, that was quite dramatic then. And on the journey back, we have a bit of a regroup. 
This has now gone beyond getting our documents. Crimes of violence against women, or even the threat of violence against women, are very badly thought of in Indonesia. And this has now become a police matter. We defer to Aris as to what to do from here. And he decides that we should first go and see Nyoman's father, who, aside from being a healer and a witch doctor, is generally regarded as being a wise and thoughtful person. So we drive to Nyoman's father's house and the brothers, his sons, are summoned to a meeting. These are Augustus, the eldest brother, Prama, the gangster, Samuel, Raymond and Tom, who is a policeman. The only missing brother is Nyoman, who is looking after the lodge, so we decide that it's better not to involve him for now. By now we speak some Indonesian, but find it hard to follow the conversation as the family discuss the situation, which all regard as being very grave indeed. This is not a violent culture. Indeed, compared to England, crime of any kind is rare here. And whilst raising a fist to a woman in England would barely register as anything in particular, here it is taken very seriously indeed, and a white woman at that. So we listen and try to understand and we get the gist of it as they discuss the various options available to us. Prama, the gangster, who is well respected in the Docklands of Manado, and is a generally very affable sort of person, and who Phil and I both like very much, comes up with one possible solution. For the Indonesian equivalent of just over a hundred quid, we could resolve the situation permanently, and we would never see Oni again, and nor would anybody else. This is, in fact, not so impractical an idea. The police here don't investigate crimes such as disappearing people unless paid to do so. And nobody in Oni's social or family circles would have the money to pay them. So it could probably be done without much fuss or bother. But still, having him killed is probably a bit drastic. So Phil and I exchange looks and quickly reject the idea. So let's try and think of something else, shall we? We do, after all, have a policeman among us, although Tom does not seem particularly adverse to the idea of having a contract killing organised. It's a fair cop, after all. In the end, and since Papa is fortunately also against the idea of premeditated homicide, at least for now, we decide that it must henceforth become a police matter, which is more Tom's domain. So it is he who will guide us through the next phases of our particular problem. 
In the first instance, we must get our papers back, which all agree is still our main priority. But we can use the fact of Oni's threatening violence against me as a lever to instigate police involvement, and Tom knows how. It's been quite a long meeting and a very interesting one, and let's see how it goes from here. We return to the lodge, and Aris gives Nyoman chapter and verse as to how the day has gone so far. With very little further provocation, Nyoman would probably sort Oni out himself, which he could easily do, and for which he has, in truth, been looking for an excuse, and now he has one. And it was probably just as well that he was not at the meeting to encourage opinion in a more violent direction. I don't understand Oni. He's worked for us since the beginning of all this, and we've had our good times together, quite a lot of them, in fact. He's clever and highly motivated, having taught himself English to a high standard, and now, with us living here, he could begin a new future and have income and security for life, or for as long as Bohowo tourism becomes and remains a viable business. So why now has he turned against us? At the foundation of all this is the fact that our land is in his name, and so in all official senses he owns it, and if, as I have long suspected, it is his intention to sell the land, lodge and all, to somebody else, why has he not tried to do so before we arrived here, when it would have been so much easier for him? Perhaps he has tried to do so without our knowledge, or perhaps he is fighting with his own conscience, who yet knows? and today has raised more questions than it has answered. Even now I am reluctant to fight with him, and would much prefer to find an amicable settlement. We could have paid him off and found a new business partner, agreed to change the names on everything and go our separate ways, but we're beyond that now, and our future here is all that really matters. In any case, tomorrow we will go to the main police station in Minado with Tom and make our report and begin that which will no doubt be a long and unpleasant business. If this is to be our Eden, then we have found our serpent and must be rid of it, one way or another. I confess that it took me, in the order of magnitude of two or three seconds longer than Paula, to conclude that paying a hitman was not the way. Or maybe it was nearer five seconds. But anyway, this will now move on to a higher level. And who knows what the powers that be will make of it all. But we will know soon enough. Motherland, cradle me. Close my eyes, lullaby me to sleep. Keep me safe, lie with me. Stay beside me, don't go Don't you go Find out what happens when we return to the adventures of Phil and Paula in Sulawesi in next week's episode of Bill's Big Bag of Onions here on Cone Radio.